Well, we've been studying through the Gospel of Luke together. And last week, as we looked at the Gospel of Luke, I brought out a point regarding levels of importance of particular doctrines. And I quoted that old statement, and I said that this is central to who we are at Summit Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, that in the essentials, unity, in non-essentials, diversity, and in all things, charity. And we talked about that just a little bit. But as I thought more about that throughout the week, I came to the conclusion that that needed a little bit of explanation. What does that look like practically? For instance, what are the essentials? When, it, when we say in the essentials unity, what are the essentials? So today I want to explore this a little bit more because I believe it's important enough and I think it's central enough to who we are as Christians and how we should consider particular beliefs that we hold and it's important enough and central enough to who we are at Summit Sovereign Grace Baptist Church that it deserves more attention. The Bible tells us, both on the one hand, that we are to pursue peace, and then on the other hand, it tells us there are times to rebuke, and there are times when we must even stop the mouths of certain people. So, how do we balance these two? Here's some questions that we can ask ourselves. One is, how do we choose our battles? When are we pursuing peace when we should be separating from someone? What beliefs and practices deserve to be rebuked? When do we cross the line when we're issuing a rebuke to someone? Who will we join hands with? in our cause for the glory of Christ? Who will we allow to join the church? Who do we deny the Lord's table? These are all very important questions. And the above statement that I mentioned, in essentials unity, in non-essentials diversity, and in all things charity when properly understood, can help us to answer these questions. So, what I want us to do here now is to break this down even further. And you can envision a series of circles. You have the innermost circle right at the very core of these concentric circles getting wider and wider outward like ripples in a pond. You know, you throw a little rock in and poop, you've got the, the blob of water that shoots up out. Have you ever seen that in stop motion, slow motion? The rock enters, you see the little invention, and then boom, you know, drops of water shoot up out of the middle. You have that core right in the middle, and then the ripples spread outward in circles that get bigger and bigger as they flow outward. Envision that inner circle and within that inner circle are truths which are essential for salvation. You have to believe something to be a Christian. And there are things that you cannot deny and be a Christian. Those things are in the very center. Number two, the second circle, are those things which we could say are essential for orthodoxy. Orthodoxy being what God's church, guided by the Holy Spirit, has held to in unity throughout the ages. Those things that a strong case can be made for from Scripture, those things that have been considered within the Christian faith, and if you deny them, you are now deemed a heretic. Although, you may not necessarily be lost. You can be a heretic and not be lost. You can be wrong in that sense, but not ultimately be lost. And that's the way I'm defining the terminology today. So essential for salvation, the first circle, the core. Second circle, essential for orthodoxy. The third circle, we could say, are things that are important, 
but they're not essential. And we'll look at examples of all of these, of course. But things that are important but not essential. The fourth circle would be things that are not important in the long run, in the end game, in the scheme of things. They're not ultimately important. The fifth circle, then, would be comprised of things that are just pure speculation. Pure speculation, because there's no scriptural support for it, but we say, hey, you know, I think this might be a possibility, right? But we're just speculating. Now, can you see how important it is for us, the farther we move away from the center, to be less tenacious, less dogmatic, less, this is the line, and you better toe the line about our beliefs. As we work our way towards pure speculation, should we be ultra-dogmatic about something that's purely spectacle? And say, if you don't toe the line, if you don't agree with me, then we're not going to have fellowship together. No, of course not. So, we're going to unpack these circles today and see if they can help us by categorizing things in this way to know what we should believe and how we should hold to the truth. Now, I mentioned right up front, I'm going to mention truths that I think are within one circle or another circle. It's not all cut and dry, folks. (laughs) I'm going to be giving much of my opinion. But when we look at things that are essential to salvation, I'm going to point us to scriptures where God says it's essential for you to believe this. And if you deny this, you are lost. So there are some things that are very clear in the Word of God regarding what circle they fall into. Other things are not so clear about what circle they fall into, but we're going to look at even some questions which help us to know what circles we should put our beliefs in, okay? So let's consider these things as we work our way through. I would propose that these first two circles, essential for salvation and essential for orthodoxy, orthodoxy again being the beliefs that Christians have been unified in through the ages. You do realize that the Holy Spirit has been around for longer than the past 50 years or so, right? You do realize that the Holy Spirit has been working in the hearts and minds of men and women as they have opened the scriptures beyond just our generations, right? So that means there is value in historical theology. There is value in looking at the history of theology and seeing what things believers have been unified in for the most part and have held to. So I would propose that those first two circles, essential for salvation, essential for orthodoxy, those two are the ones that fall within that category of in the essentials, unity. We should strive for unity and we should reject dogmatically any belief that falls outside of those two circles, essential for salvation, essential for orthodoxy. And then as we move toward important but not essential, we should be less tenacious, less dogmatic. So if someone is in, if someone violates a belief that's essential for salvation, they will not be allowed to be a member of the church here. We should not let them partake of the Lord's table as well. Those things are only for believers. You can only be a member of one of God's churches if you're truly a believer. You can only partake of the Lord's table rightly if you're a believer. Many of those things even that would fall in that second category where you would be deemed a heretic, those as well would preclude someone, would mean they're excluded from membership in the church. And if after being challenged, after being reasoned with, after being shown the scriptures, they still hold to a heresy, then it is right for them to be denied the Lord's table as well. So those two fall under that category of essentials and unity. The other three, those are non-essentials, and we should recognize that there will be diversity in the body of Christ because we're not all perfect. As a matter of fact, none of us are perfect. So we're not going to perfectly agree on every single point 
when we ourselves don't understand it all fully. But I want to emphasize this today, that there is truth, and there is objective truth that doesn't change because we don't believe it or someone else doesn't believe it. That means as Christians become more and more knowledgeable about the truth, they will become more unified and they will work their way closer together. Okay? So we should be striving for a unity in that sense in all respects, if you understand what I'm saying there. Okay? And as the more we know the truth, the more we'll grow closer together in unity, even in doctrine. Even in doctrine. But it's a fallen world and we are fallen people. And the fact of the matter is we will disagree. But when do we separate from one another? I would say not over those last three categories. That we shouldn't separate, break fellowship in the category of important but not essential, in the category of not important, or in the category of pure speculation. Okay, so let's consider that for just a moment. That first circle, essential for salvation. Here's a general guideline there. Keep that circle very small. That's a small circle, scripturally. If we are going to say that you, Joe Smith, whoever you may be, that you are damned in the eyes of God because you deny such and such doctrine, we better be dead certain, and it better explicitly say in Scripture that that's the case. I mean, you realize how serious that is? To say somebody is damned, that they're outside the faith? There are a few things, though, that Scripture makes clear, and we'll look at some of those, and we have in the past, it makes clear that if you deny this, you are lost. For instance, the Scriptures say if you deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, you are not of God. If you say that Jesus the Christ is not a man, or has not come, that the Christ has not come, then you're lost. So, we must be very careful, though. We must keep that circle very small. Only express statements of Scripture should ever lead us to say, this person is outside of the Christian faith entirely. Okay? Considering that idea of orthodoxy, remember the Holy Spirit has been at work throughout the ages. People through the ages have hammered out beliefs of Scripture. They have battled against heretics that would lead people astray. That's why we have some of those early church creeds, for instance, like the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed, where they battled against heresy and they hammered out what the truth of Scripture was. And believers were unified in general, regarding these glorious truths. We'll look at some of those as well today. Here are a couple questions that we can ask ourselves now. And again, we're going to look at some particular doctrines and apply these things. Here are some questions we could ask ourselves that will help us know what category we should put something in. One question is this. How strong a case can be made for this from the scriptures? How strong a case can be made for this belief from the scriptures? And when we're considering how strong a case, here's some things that would mean that it's a strong case. One would be, is there express, explicit statements in the scripture about this particular belief or doctrine? Or, is this belief or doctrine absolutely dependent upon or does an essential of the faith depend upon this? Are they, is it so connected to an essential that it cannot be denied? Because, for instance, the doctrine of the Trinity. That's one where we look at all of Scripture and we put together many passages of Scripture. But what do you have to deny if you're going to deny the doctrine of the Trinity? You see? That becomes a big question, doesn't it? Well, you're going to have to deny 
either that God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit is not God. Are you going to have to deny that God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit, or all of them, are not persons? Or are you going to have to deny that there isn't one God, and you'll have to say there are three gods? You see what you have to deny? So, therefore, that would be a, a, a central doctrine. But how strong a case can be made for something from the Scriptures? How frequently is it mentioned? How directly is it mentioned? And how much is it emphasized in the Scripture? If you can say it is directly, expressly, frequently, or it is totally tied into some essential truth, then you can make a very strong case for it, and it can go into those middle circles, as the Scriptures would determine. Another question that could be asked regarding how important is this doctrine? How does it affect other doctrines, as I've already alluded to? The second would be, how does it affect Christian practice? Right? Because you've got orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthopraxy being right biblical Christian practices, godly practices. So if a particular teaching leads to violation of a direct commandment of God in our practice, then that teaching must be rejected. Okay? How does it affect our practice? And then the farther we move away from doctrines really greatly affecting our practice, oftentimes, then, the farther we can move them up in the category. For instance... There was a huge debate among certain scholastic scholars uh, in the earlier church about how many angels could dance on the head of a pen. What do you think? Is that a toe-the-line, live-and-die-for doctrine or truth? You know, I think it could be this many. I think it could be that many. You, know? you see what I'm saying? First of all, uh, that one fits in pure speculation category. Is there anywhere in Scripture that says anything about angels and how many could dance on head of... No, there's nothing that even alludes to that, right? So that's pure speculation. But then ask yourself this question, too, as you're analyzing that. How directly is that going to affect your everyday Christian living? Oh, you better have that one right. You better know exactly how many angels can dance on the head of a pen or you're going to find yourself cheating, lying, committing adultery the whole nine yards, right? No, you see what I'm saying? It doesn't affect our Christian practice. So, we just need to be very balanced in this as we examine these. So, the farther we move away from the hub, those things essential for salvation the less time I think we should even spend focusing on those particular doctrines. There are some things out there in the realm of pure speculation. We could spend all day long studying things that are purely speculative and we could be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, right? So, let's consider these as we work our way downward. First of all, those things that are in the very center. Number one, essential for salvation. Here are several truths that we have looked at in the past, and I'm just going to fly through these, but we are going to turn to the scriptural support for these so you can see that these are things essential for salvation. One is that Jesus is both God and man. If you deny that Jesus is God, you are lost. You are not a Christian. If you deny that Jesus is a man, you are lost. You are not a Christian. Thus saith the Lord. Look over at John chapter 8. You cannot deny that Jesus is God and be a Christian. What does that mean? That means all Jehovah Witnesses who hold to the tenets of their cult are lost and are headed for hell and they need the gospel. They need to know who Christ is. John chapter 8. Jesus is speaking to a group of Jews here. And he says in John 8.24, Therefore I say to you that you will die in your sins, 
For if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And then Jesus goes on to say here, Before Abraham was, I am. In verse 58, And they took up stones to throw at him because they knew that he had claimed to be God there because the name of God given in Exodus to Moses was, I am that I am. Jesus is saying, I am. He's saying, I am God. They knew that. And they took up stones to stone him to death, which was a penalty for blasphemy. But he did not blaspheme. The scriptures are clear. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, referring to Christ Jesus. He is God. But notice what he says here. I said to you, you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. You have to believe Jesus is God or you will die in your sins. Look also at 1 John chapter 4, 1 through 4 regarding the humanity of Christ. First John chapter 4. Beginning with verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Notice that. If you do not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, you are the spirit of Antichrist. Therefore, you are outside of the faith. And notice this, the word confess is used there. This one is not even a matter of, well, you can't deny this, but maybe you haven't been taught this yet. Because you do realize there's a difference between somebody totally rejecting a truth after they have been taught it from the Word and not having been taught it to begin with. There is such a thing as baby Christians, new Christians that are learning the truths of of the Word. But again, I've said it before, you've got to believe something to be a Christian. You're not a Christian if you don't believe anything right What is one of those things that you have to believe? You have to confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That the Christ has come. That Jesus of Nazareth, who walked the earth 2,000 years ago, is the Christ, and that He truly came in the flesh. That He is a man, as well as God. So, you must hold to Jesus as both God and man. You must also hold to the truth of the resurrection, that Jesus rose from the dead physically. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. This is an essential of the faith. You cannot deny that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead physically in a resurrection body, and that he was literally raised from the dead, you cannot deny this and be a Christian. These are truths we hold to tenaciously, dogmatically. I know that's a curse word in many circles, but we hold to these dogmatically. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we have found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. So you see there, our faith is empty if we don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. It is vain. It is nothing. It is foolishness. We are lost. So that's an essential of the faith. Jesus is both God and man. Jesus rose from the dead. Another you must believe that salvation is by grace through faith alone and that you cannot do anything to save yourselves. 
there is no work that can be added to the work of Christ. If you believe that you are saved by works, even if you believe you're saved by your works plus God's grace, you are outside of the faith. You are lost. This is an essential of the faith. Look over at Ephesians or Galatians, first of all, chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, indeed, if it was in vain? When he talks about works of the law, he talks about works, doing things to earn your salvation, being obedient to the commands of God to earn your salvation. It is not done by the works of the law. But let's couple this with Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. He's saying here that if you believe that you must be circumcised, which was a work of the law under the Old Covenant, if you believe that you must be circumcised to be saved, then you are not actually even saved. Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Again, in the context here, it's saying that those who believe that you must be circumcised to be saved then are a debtor to keep the whole law. That means you must keep every point of it or you will be lost. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Notice the strength of that statement. If you attempt to be justified by keeping the commandments of God, if you attempt to be made right with God by obeying God, you have fallen from grace. You are lost. So it's an essential of the faith. Fourthly, you have to hold to the gospel. The gospel is essential. What is the gospel in a nutshell? 1 Corinthians 15, once again, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit, helps us answer this question. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. Notice this. You are saved by this gospel if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So whatever he's about to say about the gospel and what the gospel is, he's saying is essential. You have to believe it, right? For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. You cannot deny that Jesus Christ died to make you right with God that he died for your sins according to the scriptures and be in Christ and be saved by Christ. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that resurrection was witnessed by many. You must believe that and you must not deny that if you are to be saved. An essential of the faith. Another one is that you must believe that there is only one God. You must hold to what we call monotheism. Not a polytheism, that there are many gods. Not atheism, that there is no God. But you must believe that there is one God. One God. It tells us in Exodus chapter 20 that you must believe this 
or you will be punished by God himself. So those are some things that fit right there in that core circle, that center circle. Those aren't necessarily all. I've just listed those as examples. But you see, the scriptures expressly say you have to hold to those or you cannot deny those or you are lost. So those are essentials of the faith. Now let's move outward to that next circle, those things that are essential for orthodoxy. What things have Christians been united in throughout the ages? I'm very thankful for a list that was put together by the two men that do the theology program. I've taken several courses from them in which they list some beliefs and practices in which Christians have been united throughout the ages. So I'm going to read through this list. Then we're going to go back and we're going to take a couple of these doctrines and we're going to work off of these doctrines and look at other things that are connected to these doctrines that will fit in different circles all the way out to speculative, okay? So we're going to really practically now try and apply the question, what fits in these circles? We've seen that center circle, essential for salvation. Here now are some things which are orthodoxy. These are things that Christians have been unified in. If you deny one of these, you are a heretic, One, belief in God. That's pretty obvious, right? I'd put that in the essentials category. If you don't believe in God, you're not a Christian. You're not saved. End of story. That one's pretty clear, right? Number two, belief that God created everything. That would be a matter of orthodoxy. If you deny that God created everything, then you're a heretic. But I don't know necessarily that you are damned that you're outside the faith. We'll talk about that one a little bit more in a minute. Belief in the Trinity. That's an orthodox Christian belief. You deny the Trinity and you are a heretic. Belief in the hypostatic union. That would be that Jesus is both God and man. Where do you think that one falls in light of the scriptures that we've just looked at? You've got to believe that if you're going to be a Christian. That's an essential, right? Because otherwise you're going to have to deny that Jesus is either man or that he's God or that somehow he's man and God in the same person. Okay? Here's another one. Belief in the resurrection of Christ. Christians have been united on this. It's an essential of the faith. Belief in the atonements that Christ, by his death, makes it possible for people to be made right with God. Christians have been united throughout the centuries. Belief in the sinfulness of man. I would say that one's even essential. It says in 1 John that if we say that we have no sin, that we're a liar. Belief in the necessity of faith in Christ. Christians have been united throughout the ages that you have to have faith in Christ. That's essential because that's at the heart of the gospel. Belief in the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Christians throughout the century have believed that the Holy Spirit teaches us the word of God as we read it and makes the significance of that clear to us. Belief in the inspiration of scripture would be another that Christians have held to throughout the ages. Belief in the authority of Scripture. Belief in God's love. Belief in God's righteousness. You can see how these things are all at the core of Christianity. And if you deny any of these, then you're a heretic. Belief in the need for prayer. Belief in morality. Belief in evil. How about this? The practice of baptism and the practice of the Lord's Supper. The fact that Christians should baptize and partake of the Lord's table, Christians have been unified in throughout the centuries now. The mode of baptism and the mode of partaking of the Lord's table, they haven't been unified in that, obviously. That's why we have some who baptize babies and others who don't baptize babies, right? 
We'll talk about that one in particular as an example in a moment. Belief in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians have been unified in that throughout the ages, that Christ will come again. Belief in a final judgment. Belief in the new heaven and new earth. Belief in the same 66 books of the canon, at least. Roman Catholic Church adds to the canon. They have more books in their Bible than Protestants do, but they're in agreement on the 66 books that we hold to that those should be in the Bible. Belief in the need to love others. Belief in the need to love God. These are some things Christians have been unified in throughout the ages. Now, let's take a couple of these and let's use these as examples and work our way to those toward those categories of speculation within these particular doctrines themselves. Okay? Belief that God created everything. I would put that as a number two in the number two category. Could someone be saved and believe that God granted, say, for instance, Adam, the first man, the ability to create one or two things? The Bible doesn't say that that person is going to be lost, to my knowledge. So I hesitate to say that that person is lost. Do I believe that they're a heretic? Do I believe that they have gone against the clear testimony of Scripture, where Scripture makes a strong, strong case that God created everything that exists from nothing? Yes, I do. And I believe that they're a heretic if they say that any other person besides God has created all things. But now let's work outward just a little bit. As we work toward this next circle of essential or no important but not essential what about things such as theistic evolution and young earth creationism versus old earth creationism where might those fall in these circles theistic evolution said that God didn't actually create fully formed animals and people but that God created matter and that he oversaw to some extent the process of evolution so God basically got the ball of evolution going so it's theistic it's a God caused evolution not a materialistic no God just time random chance matter and you know you got everything that you got I think that probably falls in number two and you're a heretic if you hold to that. Why? Because the scriptures, there's such an incredibly strong case from the scriptures that God created and that he created things fully formed and that there was no random chance mutations over billions and billions and billions of years until things finally came together. You know, you look at the Genesis account and it says that God made man from the dust of the earth. And then it says that he, that he took a rib from that man and he made a woman. There's no way, shape, or form that you can twist that language to make it come to the point of, well, that's God somehow poetically describing billions or even millions of years of you got a chemical soup and then you got a basic life form that somehow crawls out of that and then that turns into this life form and that progresses over and over until you've got man. That's what it means when it says God created man from the dust of the earth and God took a rib and made Eve, right? No, it is so far from the reasonableness of the scripture in that case and it is so opposed to what Christians have been unified in throughout the ages from the scriptures themselves namely that God has created all things from nothing and he created them fully formed that if you hold to theistic evolution, you are a heretic. But what about the issue of old earth versus young earth creationism? What about the question of those who believe that, yes, God created 
things and they were fully formed, but that the earth itself is billions of years old and that the first life forms didn't come about until millions of years. There are some forms of that old earth creationism which would be not in the number two category, in my opinion, but in the number three, important, but not essential. As long as the person believes that God created everything from nothing, and that he created and fully formed, then it's within that Christian camp of debate as to how the scriptures are to be interpreted regarding the age of the earth, for instance. And there are theories such as the gap theory, which says that between Genesis 1 verse 1 and Genesis 1 verse 2, between the time of God creating matter and it was formless and void, and between God saying, let there be light, that you have a gap of, of millions or even billions of years in that time. I disagree with that. So I think it's important to hold to a younger view of creationism. Because as you examine the text and the language, and as you look through at all the different examples, like the days, I believe those days were 24 hour periods of time, the evening and the morning were the first day, etc., etc. I think it's important to hold to a younger creationism. Am I going to say somebody's a heretic if they don't? If they hold to a gap theory or if they hold to um, a day-age theory that those days in Genesis are a long period of time? No, I'm not going to say that they're a heretic. And if you go and if you read those that are trying to be faithful to the authority of Scripture, you can see their own reasoning and you can see that they're not just denying the Word of God. They're not just denying the inspiration of Scripture. They're not just saying, well, science tells us this and it doesn't matter what the Bible says. They're not doing that. So it's a debate within the Christian camp is what I'm saying. I can't take any more time on that one particularly. But I do believe that would fall in the category of number three. Important, but not essential. Okay, but what about the question of what day or when were the angels created? What do you think about that? You see, we're moving farther and farther away from the center, aren't we? It may be possible... Yeah, God made the stars. Could the angels have been created on that day? We had scripture read this morning when it talked about the morning stars at the creation. Morning stars in scripture also refers to the angels. Could the angels have been created on that day? Yeah, they could have been. Should I say that you're a heretic if you don't believe that, if that's what I hold to? <laughs> No, why? Because I can't make a good, solid, strong case from Scripture for that. And ask this question, too. How, how greatly does that affect your Christian practice? What you believe about when the angels were created? <laughs> it doesn't have a whole lot of effects. Any of you lately trying to make a, a moral decision about, you know, should I do this, shouldn't I do this? And you say, oh, wow, yes, I should not do this because angels were created on day three. You see, that doesn't affect our practice so that's a that's a four or a five not important and ultimately it, it's probably not quite pure speculation because there is that scriptural title of morning stars so not quite pure speculation somewhere hovering between a four and a five okay alright let's take another example right quickly belief in the atonements Christians have been unified that you must believe that the work of Christ is what makes people right with God. This is the gospel, is it not? When we talk about the atonement, we're saying Jesus Christ died, He was buried, He rose again, He intercedes on the behalf of believers, His completed redemptive work, including His uh, ascension into glory, that that is what makes it possible for us to be right with God. And those, I believe, are even 
more solid and sound will say that Christ's life and his righteous works. That's all part of the atonement. Now, you have to believe in the atonement to be saved. You have to believe in Christ. That's the gospel. You have to believe that Christ's work can make you right with God. But here's the question. Do you have to hold to a certain theory of the atonement to be saved? C.S. Lewis in his book Mere Christianity said that the atonement itself is that the work of Christ has somehow made us right with God. That that's the atonement itself. How we think God accomplished that is where we move into theological theories, C.S. Lewis says. And those things are not the thing itself, he says. The thing itself is that Christ's work has somehow made us right with God. I agree with that. Do I hold to a particular theory of the atonement? Yes, I do. It's called the substitutionary atonement or vicarious atonement view. That is, that Christ became our substitute, that he bore the wrath of God, that God's justice was satisfied. And when we have faith, that we are declared righteous and just by God because Christ bore that penalty on our behalf. That's the theory of the atonement that I hold to. I think that's incredibly important. But I would place that in a number three category. It's important but not essential. You're not considered a heretic if you don't hold to that specific theory down the line nor are you outside of the faith consider this for a moment the predominant theory in the early church amongst the early church fathers is that the ransom to Satan theory it's the view that God through the work of Christ that Christ paid a ransom to Satan so Satan then released the children that Christ died for and would be saved. There are great early church fathers that I've even quoted from the pulpit who held to that view. Am I going to say that they're outside the faith? You know, the view that I just outlined, that didn't come actually into full development until over a thousand years after the founding of the Christian church. Now, do I hold to it? Do I think it's important? Yes, I absolutely do. But am I going to say that somebody like Augustine was a heretic or he was damned because he doesn't hold to my full view of the atonement? No, I'm not. (laughs) No, I'm not. Most definitely not. So you see how important this is to just be very careful about our terminology? I have heard I have heard pastors that I greatly respect or preachers that I greatly respect say that the gospel is that Christ bore the wrath of the Father and was our substitute and that is how we're made right with God. As soon as they say the gospel is that, they're saying if you do not believe that, you are damned. I think they've just made a grave error by making that connection. If they're using gospel in the sense of what the Bible says the gospel is, because then they have to say that everybody up until over a thousand years after the church was founded, who didn't hold to this fully developed view of substitutionary atonement, that they were all heretics and they're all damned. And the scripture says that the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. It says you cannot deny that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. But how that all plays out and how that all took place and what was involved in all of that, the farther we move away from that central core, the less dogmatic we should be. The less dogmatic we should be.
So that penal substitution view, the vicarious atonement view, I believe that that's number three. I am going to, I think it's very important. And I'm going to preach it. And I'm going to plead with people from the scriptures not to deny it. Because there are glorious passages like Isaiah 53 that speak about it pleased God to bruise the Son. And you have passages like Second Corinthians 5.21 where it says He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So I, I think a strong case can be made from the Scriptures for that view. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to debate that and defend that. But if you hold to a Christus Victor view of the atonement or perhaps a perfect penitent view of the atonement like C.S. Lewis did or what about the ransom theory of the atonement like some of those early church fathers I'm not necessarily going to go so far as to say you're damned or you're an absolute heretic but I'll debate with you about that and point to what I believe the scriptures teach on that now there's some views of the atonement that are totally outside totally outside there's one called the example view of the atonement the example theory you know what that says that all that Christ accomplished by his death on the cross was that he gives us a good example of sacrificial love that's a denial of number one the very gospel of Jesus Christ and I'm going to say if you believe that you are not a child of God Because the scriptures say you must believe that Jesus died for our sins and that that's what makes us right with God. So there's some views of the atonement that are outside. So, as we consider these again and as we conclude, do you see how the closer we get to the center, the more dogmatic and tenacious we should be. And the essentials, unity. But in the non-essentials, diversity. The farther we move away from that, the less dogmatic we should be. The more willing to discuss those things with an open mind that we could be wrong. Are we perfect? Do we have it all figured out? Every category of theology, theology proper, pneumatology, homardiology, eschatology, ecclesiology. You know, you go through all those categories. Do we have it all figured out? Are we perfect theologians? No. Are there some things we should fight to the death for? Absolutely. The gospel. Those things right in the center. Are there other things that we should debate? You betcha. Are there things that we can agree to differ on? Yes, there are. Yes, there are. The farther we move away from those center categories, the more we can agree to differ without it affecting our fellowship. So concluding, keep the inner circles small. We better be very certain from Scripture that something's essential before we name it as an essential. Because what happens so often? People have their own long list of essentials. Don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls, or do. If you do one of those things, you're damned. Should we be doing some of those things or not doing some of those things? Some of it depends. And the scriptures can be open and examined. But we better be careful before we put those in the categories of essentials. So keep the inner circle small. Don't condemn someone without solid biblical proof. Another admonition. We need to know a little bit about the history of theology. Is that important? Is it important to have any idea what Christians have been unified in throughout the ages? I'm very loath, very loath indeed, 
to go against 2,000 years of the Holy Spirit working in the minds and hearts of men and women who were opening the Scriptures. Is that the final authority? The history of the church? Absolutely not. The Scriptures are the final authority. But here's what happens. A lot of people know nothing outside of their own little tradition. They know nothing outside of what they've been taught by their mom and dad or grandpa and grandma or what their church teaches. They don't have a clue what people for 2,000 years in the history of the church of God believe. And so they have inbred theology. Ingrown, inbred, unhealthy theology. And oftentimes those people have lists of traditions that can't even be found in Scripture that are so long and that they're so dogmatic about that it reaches a point of absolute absurdity. So know the history of theology. Consider that a little bit. Why do you think we've done things like in our Sunday school class, uh, watched a series by R.C. Sproul on the five solas of the Reformation? Does it make any difference what happened in the Reformation when people broke off from the Roman Catholic Church? You bet it does. So... We try and bring that in even in the teaching of the church to a certain degree. It's not the essential thing. It's not the most important thing. Sola Scriptura is one of those principles. We look to the Scriptures as our sole authority of rule and practice. Okay, also then we need to choose our battles carefully. The farther from sinner, the less tenacious we should be. And then another final admonition. Our beliefs, our doctrines are not an end in and of themselves. They are a goal, they are a means to the end of bringing glory to God and glory to Christ. You see that? Knowing about the atonement is not the end game. It's not the end goal. It's believing and resting in the work of Christ and the atonement so that we can magnify the glory of the Savior. So we can exalt God in the work of Christ that has been done. And so that we can then praise Him for the work that He's done on our behalf and live lives that are pleasing to Him. That's the end game. Ultimately glorifying God. It's not just knowing theology and knowing where everything fits within our little circles that I put together. That's not the end game. Is it helpful? Yes, but it's a means to the end. It's not the end in and of itself. People that can get so caught up in the theology that that's all they focus on would be like a professional athlete that gets so caught up in doing bicep curls that he doesn't even focus on the game and the sport that he's participating in. And all he does is sit there all day long and flex his bicep. So it's important to remember the end game is glory to God. So we should be conscientious about where our beliefs fall into these circles and we should be tenacious to defend essential truths and we should be open and not dogmatically critical regarding important truths but those that fall in those last circles. But again, the closer that we work toward the truth, the more that God's children will be unified even in doctrine. And it is a good thing and a glorious thing to do good, healthy debates and to work toward the truth. So I'm not saying we'd be so open-minded that our brains fall out. (laughs) I'm not saying that We shouldn't debate the truth. But I'm saying that we just be balanced. And we make the main thing the main thing. And the farther we get away from that, the more open we should be. Well, I hope we've uh, got some food for thought there. Again, uh, we'll have our meal together now. And then... We'll come back over here for just a few minutes after the meal and we'll partake of the Lord's Supper together. And I'll mention right away for the the sake of our guests that 
if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are resting in Christ for your salvation, not trying to accomplish it by your works, if you believe to the, the gospel that we have outlined today from the scriptures, and if there is evidence in your life that you have been transformed by the work of Christ, then you are welcome to partake of the Lord's table with us. We, we don't exclude you, nor do we examine you personally before we allow you to partake of the Lord's table. That ultimately is between you and God. But I just want to let you know, if you are a true believer in Christ, you are free to partake with us today. Let's pray together. Our Father, I ask that you would give us great wisdom as we consider the beliefs of the Christian faith and what we're to believe and how we're to hold to them and how we're to discuss them with people that disagree with us. I just pray, Father, that these things will be helpful to us, that we'll trust in you, we'll rest in your word, your word will be our ultimate authority and that you will help us to be unified in the essentials, that we will be willing to accept diversity in non-essentials, and that we will always exercise charity, true, godly, Christ-like love at all times. We ask you to bless the rest of our day together. In Jesus' name, amen.